0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, uh, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word, if you have one in tow, and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. We're kind of in a little pause here between 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Corinthians 15, and so uh, I wanted to look at this topic um, in... in, uh, Ecclesiastes. We looked at, we preached through this a a number of years ago, and there's some great, first of all, I love this book, and I think it is wrongly um, seen as a negative book or a kind of a downer book. It is brimming and just effusive with uh, joy and thankfulness and, um, and wisdom, and really the theme of the book being that life is a gift, not Gain, and we need to understand that as the theme of the book. And when you understand that this book was read in a time of um, joy, in a time of thanksgiving, uh, in the life of Israel, uh, you have to understand why that is. and And so, I want to look this morning at um, the last part of chapter eight, Ecclesiastes chapter eight, and the first few verses of chapter nine. So, I just want to read those verses. It begins a new section in verse 16 in Ecclesiastes 8. Solomon, who's the author of this book, says, "'When I gave my heart to know wisdom "'and to see the task which has been done on the earth, "'even though one should never sleep day or night, "'and I saw every work of God, "'I concluded that man cannot discover "'the work which has been done under the sun. "'Even though man should seek laboriously, "'he will not discover, "'and though the wise man should say, "'I know, he cannot discover.'" For I have taken all this to my heart, and explain it that and explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion." For the living know that they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking upon your head." Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. We are a people who love predictions. You and I love predictions. We love predictions because predictions imply a measure of control. Predictions come rise out of a heart that believes that we so understand the world and we so understand the universe that we can actually foretell where it is going, both in a broad sense and even as it relates to our individual lives. The thing is, though, we are really bad at predictions as as a whole, Uh, and the reason we're bad at predictions is because we are, and we know this, because we are constantly surprised. Uh, I am always surprised. 7 years this is interesting historically 7 years before the introduction of anesthesia in 1846 a french surgeon said that quote the abolishment of pain in surgery is a chimera in other words it's impossible there's no it's a it's a pipe dream or 8 years before the first successful operation for stomach cancer in 1881 the british surgeon john uh, Eikson predicted that the abdomen, the chest, and the brain will forever shut be shut from the intrusion of the wise and humane surgeon, or IBM chairman Thomas Watson predicted in nineteen forty three that the world market for computers would be approximately five <laughs> richard uh, van der. Riet, Wooly, and a British astronomer said in 1956, this is what a British astronomer said in 1956, that, quote, space travel is utter bilge. In other words, it's never going to happen. Right, every one of those definitive predictions about the future was wrong. It's been calculated that somewhere between two-thirds of all forecasts made by social scientists in the 40s, 1940s to the 1980s, two-thirds of those predictions by social scientists proved to be mistaken. I mean, we are shockingly bad at predicting the future <laughs> as a culture, and and we're so bad that you think we would have figured it out by now, right? The fastest runner of the Olympic Games, the sure bet, the one that they pump up in the pregame and the pre-race, um, uh, you know, narratives, they're the one who trips 10 meters from the finish line and, and doesn't even medal, Or the, the, the team with the best record and the best players gets knocked out of the tournament in the first round. Or the best trained and the best resource military in the world fails to win a guerrilla war after nearly 20 years. Right. Time and again, we see and experience the unpredictable Nevertheless, we continue to deny what is obvious, and that is that we cannot predict, much less control the future. We simply cannot. Why is this? Well, we live in a world, why do we, why do we keep clinging then to this idea of prediction and control? Well, we live in a world in which we, we see cause and effect. We understand that in a simple level. If I press a light switch, you know, the lights come on. If I brush my teeth faithfully, hopefully I get less cavities. If I spend less money, I'm able to increase my savings, right? There's this visible connection between cause and effect in the world that we live in in a very simplistic way, and those things become so innate, so natural, that uh, we we kind of uh, extrapolate from that into every other area of life. The more accustomed we become to this cause and effect relationship, the more it can delude us into thinking that the universe can be mastered; that the universe can be controlled. If you just have enough time, if I just have enough, um, you know, well-developed technique, if I'm just diligent enough, I can figure everything out and predict and control um, the future. This is this is really the uh, much of what drives advertising: the promise and the power of controlling different aspects of our lives. If if you buy this product, if you eat this food, if you Uh, avoid this sort of drink or whatever, you know, you can control your lives. You don't have to be frail. You don't have to be mortal. You can define and shape yourself and become the person you really want to be, and and that's what drives so much of of the advertising world. Um, That's that's in the world, but it's true even in the church, I think, sometimes, too. Um, This is not just a secular idea that we can control the future. Uh, Christian churches perpetuate a similar delusion, Except what they advertise as a means of control is God himself, rather than, you know, anything outside of God. Um, Listen to this quote by a, a commentator. He says, the good news is packaged, and this is in churches, is packaged and marketed as a religious product, offering peace of mind, how to get to heaven, health and prosperity, inner healing, the answers to all your problems. He goes on to say, what is promoted as faith in God often turns out on closer inspection to be a means for obtaining emotional security or material blessing in this life and an insurance policy for the next. This kind of preaching and teaching leaves the status quo untouched. It does not raise fundamental and disturbing questions about the assumptions on which people's lives are built. It does not threaten the false gods. Indeed, it actually reinforces their hold on their worshipers. This kind of gospel is essentially escapist, the direct descendant of the pseudo-gospels of the false prophets in the Old Testament. It is simply a religious image of the secular consumer culture in which the modern man and woman live. At the heart of this idolatry is an attempt to manipulate God or the unseen spiritual world in order to obtain security, well-being for oneself, or one's group whether that is a family, business, ethnic community or even nation state." End quote. If you the thing the thinking is if you're faithful, if you're obedient to God, if you muster enough faith, God will give you everything you will ever want. That is the prosperity gospel. You'll avoid illness and disaster, long life and prosperity will pursue you all the days of your life. All you need to do is have enough religious devotion, and so God becomes an instrument to actualize our selfish ends. But whether it's our powers of observation, or the world of advertising, or the watered down and false forms of Christianity, the fundamental error is the same. And the error is this, that correct technique or correct belief can give me the edge and help me master and control the future. And what Solomon does along with um, everything else he's written in this book, is essentially take a wrecking ball to all of that. He destroys it. All our predictions about the future, all our illusions of control, all our assumptions about how life is supposed to go for different groups of people, that is absolutely demolished by divine wisdom in this book. The preacher, as he calls himself here, And other biblical writers remind us that while the universe is an ordered place and its effects are in fact, uh, and and, and cause and effect are in reality, um, you know, at work, nevertheless, the universe is not a machine. The universe is not a machine, and any presumption that we can predict, manipulate, or come to some kind of comprehensive understanding of it all is a myth, Everything has has been created, everything is being sustained, and everything will be governed according to the sovereign will of the living God. And that is the point of this section. Now, just to give us a little bit of orientation, if you think about this book, you can break it up into four parts. Chapters 1 and 2, you could call the Valley of Vanity, in which Solomon searches out all these things, and he comes to the conclusion that life is a gift, and that's about it. Everything else is vanity. And then he ascends from the valley of vanity in chapters 3 to 5 to what you might call the providential plains. and he shows how God is in control of everything from every season of life and so forth, and that God's hand is in the glove of all human events. In chapters 6 to 8, he is... um, explaining and applying those realities from chapters 1 to 5. You could call it the applicational ascent. And then as you come now to chapter 9 and all the way to chapter 12, Solomon, his argument is being strengthened and supplemented as he moves toward a conclusion at the end of the final verses of the book in chapter 12. And he's not giving us new information here, if you've read through this book or studied through it, For the most part, he is just encouraging and admonishing us as readers to embrace this perspective on life that he has laid out. There are still mysteries of divine providence in the world that we cannot understand. There are still discouragements that we face, and he doesn't want those puzzles and those problems to dishearten us. He does not want those things to discourage us or dissuade us from joyfully embracing our life here on earth as a gift from God. So you could label this final section from 9, chapter 9 to chapter 12, we'll call it a scramble to the summit. In these final chapters, like eager mountain climbers, you and I as readers are making a mad dash to that final summit, that conclusion, which he says is the conclusion of all things is to fear God and to keep his commandments. But as we look at our text this morning from 8, verse 16 to chapter 9, verse 9, Solomon is going to remind us not to let the uncertainty of the future destroy or steal our joy in the present. In other words, to, 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 because the future is unknown to us, the, the specifics of it, that, and that reality is inescapable, we do not need to let that steal our joy now in the present. There are mysteries about God's ways and God's works that remain unsolved, and they will always be unsolved, but that does not mean that we cannot have joy in the present, which I think is just an important thing to think about because as we come to thanks, the Thanksgiving holiday and, and we have great expectations for things, and, and yet we live in a mixed world, right? There's, there's things to be thankful for, and there's many things that have been discouraging and overwhelming and, and difficult, and so he's going to help us keep our joy, count it all joy, as we look at these these uh, verses this morning, we break this up into four parts. The first is in verse sixteen to ch- uh, eight, verse sixteen to chapter nine, verse one, and that is this: to how do we keep uncertainty from stealing your joy? First, you need to understand that where there's life, there's mystery. Where there is life, there is mystery. In verses eight, uh, chapter eight, excuse me, for verses twelve to fifteen. In the preceding section there, he remind us to live with integrity in the midst of a corrupt world. And verse 14 says, there is futility. Solomon says, there's a futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And on the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this too is futility. In other words, and he says, in this present world, retribution and reward are often flipped. They're in reverse from what you would expect, um, even at the highest levels of authority. The, the fact that blessings reserved for the righteous fall, those blessings fall on the wicked And that the wicked often, what the afflictions that ought to be falling on the wicked, wicked, those things fall on the righteous. He says it is an, an enigma that cannot be fully resolved. He says it cannot be known. It can't be sorted out. And he says you shouldn't bother trying. You shouldn't try to, because no matter how hard you try, you cannot arrive at a comprehensive understanding of God's ways and God's works. And that's what he says here in verse 16. He says, "'When I gave my heart to know wisdom "'and to see the task which has been done on the earth, "'even though one should never sleep day or night, I saw every, "'and I saw every work of God, "'I concluded that man cannot discover the work "'which has been done under the sun. "'Even though man should seek laboriously, "'he will not discover, "'and though the wise man should say, "'I know, he cannot discover.'" The language that that Solomon uses here is very similar to the language that he used earlier in the chapters uh, 1 and and 3, chapters 1 and 3, really, where he sought to know wisdom and observe life in an attempt to to get a grasp of it all. And, of course, he says it's impossible. He uses all of his God-given powers, and Solomon was a wise man. He used all of his God-given powers of observation and wisdom and he applied them to the fullest degree. And he says, and, and how comprehensively was this? Well, he says it was 24-7, 365. He says, even though I should never sleep, verse 16. Even though I said, I saw all the works of God or every work of God. He's not speaking literally. Of course, he's speaking in, figuratively using hyperbole. But he's saying, I pushed this thing, this wisdom thing. I pushed the gas to the floor to try and figure it out. And what was Solomon's conclusion? Verse 17, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know he cannot discover. He says it's too much. You cannot know that way You cannot know comprehensively. He says, cannot discover three times in verse 17. It's not a matter of effort. He says, you can seek it laboriously. That's the picture here. It doesn't matter. It's not a willpower thing. It's not an effort thing. It's not a wisdom thing. It's a God-ordained limitation. You say, well, sure, obviously, maybe an unbeliever isn't able to understand or wrap their minds around the plans and purposes of God because their hearts are darkened. But what about godly people? Maybe Christians have a better, a better um, grasp of things. What about God's children who are rightly related to him, who have spiritual eyes to see and, and to see things as they, as they are and, and are enlightened with spiritual wisdom by the Spirit of God himself? Surely we are not stumbling around trying to understand what God's doing. But verse 1 of chapter 9 shows that it's true for us as well. He says, For I have taken all this to my heart, And explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. It doesn't matter if you belong to God or not. God's sovereign ways and his works are not ultimately knowable for you or for me. You and I are just as much in the dark about the secret will of God as the next person. You don't know, he says, if it'll be love or hatred. In other words, you don't know whether you'll experience good or bad, blessing or affliction. That's the the heart of what he's saying there in verse 1. All we know is what God has revealed to us in his word. And I think this is so important, especially today. In the world we live in, where, where knowledge and information is ubiquitous, it's at our fingertips at any given moment. And and, to he, and one of the things that is very discouraging, I remember back during when COVID was kind of like front and center, and we were all kind of at home and doing our thing, how many people were out there claiming to know exactly what God was doing in that situation? The Christian leaders saying, well, God is judging this group, or God is doing this to that leader. They made these definitive and blanket statements that were frankly ridiculous and more hurtful to our gospel proclamation than they were helpful. See, in our quest for an explanation of the presence of evil or pestilence or injustice or inequities in life, you know, we have to understand that God sits at the helm. God is the one that is driving those things. And he is overruling any of our expectations for his glory and ultimately for our good as believers. And we can't go any further than God does. We need to understand that where there is life under the sun in this sin-cursed world, there will always be mystery, always. And if you are someone, as I am at times, who insists on trying to solve every mystery, if you insist on you have to pin a why on every twist and turn in God's providences. If, you have, if you're given to making bold and brash predictions about the future and the secret counsels of God, Solomon reminds us here that that is a fool's errand. Because you're, what you're trying to do is impossible. You cannot do it. Be content. We must be content to let mystery remain where there's life there's mystery. How can we keep uncertainty from stealing our joy? Secondly, we need to understand that where there's life, there is death. In a sin-cursed world where there is life, there will be death. Verse 2 of chapter 9, it is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. He says, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. Solomon wants us to understand that we live in a world that's broken by, a curse, by the curse of sin. The wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 8 verse 4, Ezekiel says, The soul who sins will die. Death is a fundamental reality in this world because sin is a fundamental reality in this world. We understand that. Scripture speaks of three different kinds of death. The first is spiritual death, spiritual alienation from God. This is every man's default condition, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 and verse 1, he says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 5, even when you were dead in your transgressions, you, God that's when God broke through to us. It, we are all under the curse of sin, and that has brought a separation from God, an indifference to spiritual truth, a forfeiture of spiritual life. So the first way the scripture speaks about death is spiritual death. Secondly, of course, we understand is physical death. While our spiritual death is immediate, right? We are born in sin, mercifully, God doesn't impose, physical death on us the moment of our conception. But the moment we're born, we are all progressing toward physical death. Like Adam, our material being is dust, formed from the dust, and if you live long enough, your physical body will eventually return to the dust, right? Genesis 3, verse 19, God says, "...by the sweat of your face you will eat bread." This is Adam, God speaking to Adam, till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. And Unless Christ comes back, if we live long enough, we will all perish. There's a third way the Bible speaks about death. There's spiritual death, physical death, and lastly is eternal death. Eternal death is what awaits those who die physically while still remaining in a state of spiritual death. If you die in a state of unbelief, the scriptures say that you will face any conscious judgment in a place called hell. It's described in the scriptures as a lake of fire, a place where there is weeping, gnashing of teeth. It's called a place of outer darkness. In Revelation 20, verse 6, John tells us that those who die physically, while still dead spiritually, because they've rejected Jesus Christ as Savior, they experience what he calls in Revelation 20, the second death. And so there's three, you know, it's kind of three different categories of death. Spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. They're all kind of related to the problem of sin. Every human being comes into the world experiencing spiritual death. If we live long enough, we will all experience physical death. But in God's grace, he has made a way of escape from the third and probably the most devastating, which is eternal death. God in his grace has made this way of escape. And the Bible says that way of escape is through The Lord Jesus Christ. The one who was sinless, came from heaven to earth. His name is Jesus Christ, and he went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He is the one and only hope of salvation. He bled, he died, he rose again to bear the weight of eternal death for all who will trust in him. This is the good news of the gospel. And those who put their faith in him, those who rest and receive that faith, that, that, that salvation by, through faith, God regenerates them. He makes them alive spiritually. But he says that does not mean that we will not die physically. The promise of spiritual life and eternal life does not negate the curse of, physically. And that is the point that Solomon is, that's the only point Solomon is trying to make here in verses 2 and 3. Everybody dies. We will all perish. Physical death is indiscriminate. That's why he says it's the same for all. Righteous, wicked, the good man, the swearer, the one who's, you know, looking to God, the one who's afraid to do that, the evil, the good, there's this one fate for all men, verse 3. Afterwards, they go to the dead at the end of their lives. So physical death is an inescapable reality that every one of us needs to come to terms with, I think. This is a, a healthy understanding of our situation. We are going to die if Christ is not returned. Band of Brothers is a... HBO series that they did on the 101st Airborne. Many of you probably have watched it or parts of it. And uh, it's, a, you know, it's a fictional recreation of a, of a historical group and follows these guys. And there's a scene in that where a young airman by the name of Albert Blythe was just paralyzed, just paralyzed with fear. And um, he, uh, he, he can't sleep, he can't talk, uh, they're on the front lines there and um, it's the middle of the night in this scene and, and this commanding officer comes walking up and down the line in the middle of the night and he starts talking to this young airman and he asks him why, why he hid in a ditch on D-Day instead of trying to find his unit and the young man acknowledged that he was just scared of dying. He was scared of dying. To which the commanding officer responded, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. The sooner you accept that, he says, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. And his point is that if you have to accept death as a fundamental reality rather than always trying to run from it. And that is true for you and for me as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. The sooner we acknowledge that we have already died and our life is hidden with Christ in God, the sooner we can function the way a soldier of Jesus Christ is supposed to function. To live without fear and anxiety. To live with joy. To live sacrificially in loving others. To give our lives away for their benefit. To live to speak of Christ with boldness and with confidence. The sting of death as we'll get to in 1 Corinthians 15, has been removed. The penalty of our sin has been taken away and dealt with at the cross if you have put your faith in Christ. And so we must get up out of the ditch, proverbially speaking, and live joyfully for Jesus today and every day because where there is life, there is death. Now thus far, we've come to terms with the uncertainty of life, the inevitability of death, but that doesn't mean that life has no purpose and it doesn't mean that life has no value because it does. We are not advocating for chaos or death, just the opposite. As those who fear God and have put our faith in Christ, we are champions for purpose and life. And that leads us into our third point in verses four to six, where there's life, there's hope. Where there is life, there is hope. Look what he says there in verse four. For whoever is joined with all the living There is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. The fact that death is inevitable does not prompt us to go dig a dying hole so we can just sit in it and wait to expire. While you and I are still alive, there is hope, hope for preparation of meeting God, hope of living significantly, hope of doing something to the glory of God before you stand before him. And those who have already died have no hope, no opportunity to think rightly about it, no opportunity to change their ways and live the way God has intended, no longer able to receive life as a gift for their life has has come to a close. And as verse 6 says, everything that they can experience in this life perishes with them. They, those who have died, there, there's no part, no share, no inheritance in their present rewards that God gives to those who fear him, those who are rightly connected to him. It's a proverb you see in verse 4. There's a proverb at the end of verse, uh, of verse 4. There is, He says, surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. It's actually... Um, found in Arabic as well, it reinforces the significance of life. That's kind of the point of it. As lowly and as despicable a creature as a dog is in the ancient world, they weren't pets, okay, dogs were scavengers, they were like the raccoons of the ancient world. But he says, uh, uh, as despicable and lowly as a dog is, It is far more preferable to be a living dog than a mighty, majestic, exalted, but dead lion. Just because death is inevitable doesn't mean life has no blessing or benefit. And to walk away from the book of Ecclesiastes, if you read it from cover to cover, to walk away from this book and think, well, that's, you know, what's the point of life? is to fundamentally misunderstand the theme of the whole book. Yes, life is uncertain. Yes, life is fleeting, but that does not mean life is hopeless. It does not mean life has to steal your joy in the present. And that leads us into the fourth and final truth. How how do you keep uncertainty from stealing your joy? Verses seven to nine tell us, where there's life, there is joy. We need to embrace the joy that God does give us. Go then, he says, eat your bread in happiness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given, you, given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun." Verse 7 is a, is a command. He says, come on, be up and about it. This is what you are to do. The picture here of wine and bread, these were the staples of life in that time, in the ancient world. They are frequently paired together in the scriptures to speak of the comfort of That God gives to cheer us in this life. If you look back at Genesis chapter 14 and verse 18, it says Melchizedek, king of Salem, when he came out to meet Abram, he says he came out and he brought out his bread and wine, and he was a priest of God most high. Or 1 Samuel 16 and verse 20, Jesse says Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David his son. So the picture is a kind of a staple items, the, the necessities of life. That's what that's, that pictures. And then he, because ordinary people at that time certainly weren't able to maintain and constantly clean their nicest and most comfortable white garments the way the wealthy could, high-ranking people obviously always kind of walked around in their Sunday best, but, they, but the rest of us reserved their white garments for festive occasions. And that's the picture in verse eight. The same was true of perfuming or anointing oneself with oils. If you were an average person who didn't have any, you know, over, you know particularly a large amount of means, you would, these things would have been re, would set aside for special times. So white garments and oil upon the head became emblems of joy and festivity. That's the picture in verse eight. And then in verse 9, he says he commands us to enjoy life with our spouse. If God has given you a spouse, Solomon's advice is to enjoy the delights of married love and companionship instead of worrying about the mystery of the world. So the last part of verse 7 gives the reason we can joyfully receive life as a gift. Notice he says, God has already approved your works. God has approved or validated your works. This is God's response to those who have faith in him, those who fear him, which is just a shorthand in the Old Testament for faith. If you've placed your faith in God, if you're looking to Christ as the one and only hope of salvation, you don't need to worry about whether God is indifferent to you or your life. He's not. He loves you with an everlasting love that has been set in motion before the foundations of the universe. You are the special object of his saving love, his acceptance, and not because of your good deeds but because of his grace and goodness and his life, his the life he has given you is a life that we are meant to enjoy. So be joyful and receive God's gifts, whatever they are for you, and enjoy them to the best of the ability that you can. And if you truly fear God, and you truly won't long to obey him, why should you have life stolen out from under you? Simply because you cannot wrap your mind around all the mysteries of the universe. Are you going to flush the present reward and blessing that God gives you? Are you going to flush that down the drain because you don't think life is fair? Or because life has not unfolded according to your expectations? Are you going to forfeit happiness and a cheerful heart because life doesn't make perfect sense to your finite mind? I mean, that is the epitome of cutting your nose off in spite of your face. None of us can resolve the mysteries of divine providence, so we are to get on with life and not worry about the details. You don't need to understand fully why the wicked prosper. You don't need to understand why the righteous are afflicted. We don't need to understand all the reasons why God places fools and wicked men in positions of authority and wise men struggle to exert influence on a culture. You don't need to fix it. We don't need to fix it so we must enjoy whatever god has given us as a gift of his grace and so we can live our life before god with gladness with joy and we are not to sacrifice living joyfully before god and right don't sacrifice living joyfully before god chasing after a knowledge that is beyond your reach and i think many folks who are walk in the faith for a long time become embittered because the world hasn't unfolded before them the way they thought it would, and they become they come to the end of their lives grumpy, um, embittered, without hope, without joy, and that should never be the case for the believer. Because we understand, we understand how it works. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes does for us so well. It helps us understand what is achievable and knowable and what is not, what God does expect of us and what we cannot do. So the preacher, as he calls himself here, urges acceptance of the grace and joy of life and not pessimism. He says that we're not to be nihilists, we're not to start struggle with blind determinism, Christians are to be rebuked for rejecting God's good gifts and refusing to use them in the proper way. It's a wrong view of worldliness that says everything that is ordained by God for man's enjoyment has to be denied or begrudgingly used. That's the wrong way to think about those things. Many Christians have developed a super pious but very unhappy and even miserable existence because because they cannot receive the good things that God has given them with the right heart. And obviously, we don't want to worship created things or make idols out of them or put them in the place of God, but neither are we to behave as if God did not give us those things. And we have been blessed beyond measure, and so we need to give thanks to God appropriately. Recognize that our experiences in life will always And I think this is what we need to understand. Our lives will always be a mixture of good and bad, joyful surprises and bitter disappointments, blessings beyond measure, and tragedy that is so hard to conceptualize. All those things are true, and we should not spend our time worrying about the future while failing to live for God in the present with joy. As the psalmist says in Psalm 118, verse 24, this is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Where there's life, there's mystery. Where there's life, there is certainly death. But where there's life, there is hope. And where there's life, there is true everlasting joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us so many wonderful things to enjoy in this world. And the, the, the blessing of knowing you unlocks, as it were, a true understanding of those things. It, it helps temper our expectations, but it also helps us to see that your hand, your goodness, is involved in all that is happening in every stage, in every situation. Lord, help us to count it all joy. May we understand that all things are working together for good to those who love you, to those who fear you, and may that Uh, allow us to press on and live for you. Lord, I pray that our church would be marked out by joy. Joy in the little things, joy in the big things. Help us to hold the things of this world as we've prayed over and over again with an open hand, knowing that while you can give, you can certainly take away. But your name is to be blessed above all. Lord, help us to live for you, we ask, especially in this season... Of um, consuming and and just kind of acquiring through this Christmas season that the secular culture just presses in on us Lord help us to recognize that um, we have so much to be thankful for help us to be content in Jesus name amen thank you for listening we hope you've been encouraged by today's message for more information or more messages like this Visit us at CascadesBibleChurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.